This is RDQI. Hey, right. Why do we eat beef and not cows? Yeah, okay, great question. I love these questions. Mainly because etymology is one of those weird, quirky things that I find fascinating. You know, like, where does the word come from, right? What's the root? Um, yeah, because language... You and me both. Language changes over time, you know? Which, I mean, as Americans, it's like, well, obviously, we are very familiar with slang and its pervasiveness in popular culture, therefore, in popular language. But something like beef, you know, that's that's old school. We have to go back to, I mean, almost a millennia, well, no, a millennia ago, actually, almost, to figure out where that one comes from. And I think, and here's why I think it's fascinating. Because at one time in England, where people eventually would speak English, and they were speaking English at the time, but not like we would understand it. At one time, what we call England was ruled by French people. They were ruled by the Normans. And so the language of power was Latin because the church spoke ex exclusively in Latin because that was the original translation of the Bible. Therefore, it was the most holy of languages. And then you had the second power language, which is French. So if you're at the king's court, if you're at a, a court of justice, you name it, in that time in England, you were probably speaking French to, to communicate inside the system of power. So, you know, kind of hold that in your thoughts. So, uh, by the way, date, I think 11th century, I want to say the Battle of Hastings was 1066 AD, um, and that's yes, right around was. the time. Hey, how about it? Okay. That's right around the time. <laughs> I don't time. know many dates, but I know that date. <laughs> you know the Battle of Hastings? <laughs> yep, 10, 1066, Battle of Hastings. <laughs> I, had a, I had a brief tangent. I had a... a uh, English teacher in high school when uh, for my my Brit lit class, who um, for whatever reason was very very into having us memorize things. Mm -hmm. um, so like I and and good at it too. Like you had to do it. So there's a lot of weird things that I remember, like how to say the Our Father in Old English and the first sixteen lines of the Canterbury Tales in Old English. And hey, okay. The Order of the Kings of England, and that Battle of Hastings was 1066, and Magna Carta was 1215. <laughs> hey, you know, I've never really thought that memorizing rote dates was terribly important in history. Um, I think if you get the century right, for the most part, like, you're you're getting what you really need. But that is impressive. 1066. I think it's the, I think really what it teaches you is the, like, the skill of being able to memorize something. Sure. The ability to retain rote memory. Yep. Well, I mean, it's actually interesting. I mean, it's it might seem arbitrary, but Battle of Hastings was a big deal in terms of world history, uh, and certainly the Western mind, if you will. Um, so the short version that's totally incorrect but gets the idea across, uh, there was a Norman king. So England didn't exist, first off, right? It, that whole political entity just was not a thing yet. Um, it was more a bunch of lords in their castles who ru ruled over their peasants, basically. Those lords in their castles would 
you know, pledge allegiance to a king who would rule over the land. And But the aristocracy, the lords, had a lot of power too. So it was always a push-pull dynamic. The idea of a state, like the state of England, the country of England, the country of France, they didn't really exist like we would think of it today. Right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so crazy that a Norman king would be like, you know what? All of what we're going to someday call England actually belongs to me, and I'm going to go over there and conquer you to prove it. And that was, you know, essentially the Battle of Hastings. A few... There were like two other things that happened. But yeah, that was basically it. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this this setup in England, in you know, in and around London, where to engage in any form of politics, to advocate for yourself and your homeland, you had to be able to speak in French. So you, the language of power again was French. And I think that legacy has lived with us because why do we call it beef? Well, it's because in French... The word for cow or cattle is boeuf, B-O-U-E-F. I probably spelled that wrong, but it's boeuf, right? And so we've mm-hmm. continued to call it beef ever since. And by we, I mean in the English language, we've continued to call it beef. Same thing with pork. Um, it wasn't, you know, English technically would be swine, like a swine herder, that sort of thing. Someone who mm-hmm. herds swine. But the French word, P-O-R-C, pork, we held over today. The one exception, well, there's two exceptions. Chicken, we don't call it poulet anymore. I'm not sure why. Couldn't figure that one out. And then yeah. uh, fish, this one makes sense. Poisson in French mm-hmm. uh, looks a lot like poison when you spell it in English. So I can see why you wouldn't want mm-hmm. to affirm that relationship. <laughs> but I find it fascinating that even though a millennia ago, just the language of power change, which admittedly at the time was like earth shattering. It was, well, not earth shattering. It changed Western Europe forever, you could say. But we still hold on to those vestiges of language from that epoch. I find that immensely fascinating. Well, yeah. And, and there's, um, there's this, this wonderful mystery about it too. Um, really quick before I jump into that. <clears throat> so, this whole battle of Hastings and then language explanation. There's a, a YouTube channel called Oversimplified that does really great historical retellings. Like they're really entertaining. They're fun to watch, um, even if you're not a huge history buff, just because they're really well done. Um, but there's a uh, one of his videos is the war that changed the English language, and it's about the Battle of Hastings. Oh, gotcha. Um, and actually, the the thumbnail says it's like two people arguing. One says cow, and the other says beef. So spot on there. <laughs> um, but but there's there's so much mystery about it because in some cases the etymological history of something is pretty it's it's pretty historically traceable. Like it's easy to see how this word evolved into what it is. But for so many words, we don't know. There are um hypotheses but there are like equally plausible hypotheses that are completely different so if i think about the word for um pizza right like everybody knows pizza right um there's three very conflicting theories as to how that word came to be all right i've never heard these three run them by me so the first is um from the Byzantine Greek, where pizza, they think, came from the word pita, um, which then, you know, 
went east and became PETA. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Like you put your falafel in PETA. I got you. And then there's one that's you have to look at on your own because it's a, it's a lot. But they're, they're uh, from the old Italian pinza, which means to clamp. Um, they think it might have been you know one of the tools that early pizza crafters would use. Um, and then the third one is there's a, a word from a specific Italian dialect of Lombard um, where the word was bizzo, meaning a mouthful or a bite. And then... Um, there was a German invasion at one point because Lombardy is in the, the north part of Italy. Mm-hmm. And the German invasion, basic a uh, German invasion, German um, uh, occupation of that area, the B became a P because of this high German consonant mm-hmm. shift that also occurred during that era. Oh, interesting. Um, and they they use imbus like imbustuba imbus is snack but it used to be impis um, <laughs> which then is a whole different etymological sure. mystery oh man i love this stuff. but they don't know yeah. like they're 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 trying to fig- but but like you know etymology is not really written down the evolution of language is something that really just kind of occurs and we don't think to document it historically in the way we document things like battles or, um, you know, ruling classes or, or things like that. Because, you know, what's what's the point? <laughs> That's what I think is interesting about language is that, um, well, first off, like one way to think about language that I thought was really helpful was a language can either be descriptive or prescriptive. Right. So you can prescribe language like a doctor might prescribe a medicine. And that'd be more like French today. There is an official organizing body in France who says this word is French, this word is not French. And they, they basically maintain the dictionary. Whereas English is a descriptive language. It's much more like the dictionary is describing how people use the, the current language. Right? So mm-hmm. words like ain't and y'all. If you're a prescriptivist, those are not English words because they're silly. They're, they don't make sense. They don't have, I don't know, bona fides, whatever you want to say. Whereas I'm definitely in the camp of the descriptivist, which is like, uh, well, people are using y'all, which is a contraction of you and all. So why don't we just say that it's English? Like, let's, like the people are using it. Who cares that some governing body says it's not English? And I definitely fall yeah. on the description side. I think I mean there. You're right. There are there are languages that um, there's much more of a preservation movement, like French. Right. I mean, there's there's a literal body that's you know tasked with making sure French stays a pure language. Which <laughs> I don't know. Just by that that wording alone, you can kind of see how that whole prescriptivism is problematic. <laughs> um, but it, but I mean I'm, I totally agree with you. Language is a living, breathing organism, and and to me, any any attempt, you know, not even in, in language. I mean, apply it to anything. Any attempt to freeze something in a place and time ignores just the you know the the constant of change that really runs you know life, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, you know, no, we, 
we may cut this out, but you know, it sort of to me is like, it, it, you know, it, it's everybody loves to pick on the Amish, um, but there's there's a reason they're so pick onable because they drew a line in the sand at a very specific point in time and said, "This is how we're going to live," right. and it's sort of ridiculous. But it, you know, same thing with language. It's well, no, this is English, so you know, people stop using the word literally to mean its opposite. Well enough people use literally to literally mean figuratively that that's just sort of how that word functions. Now you can try as you, as much as hard as you want to, to, you know, to, to set that word in stone. But the reality is that you're going to lose, right? You're, you're always going to lose when you try and shore up against the wave of evolution. Yeah, like thought evolution and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like, okay, so fr- fr- this isn't gonna like sink the French language, but I thought this was immensely funny when I was visiting France the last time. The word for a lawyer was avocat, which is kind of where we get the English word advocate. You know, put a D in there, and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They're my legal advocate, right? Mm-hmm. Which is fine and all well and good until um, globalism brought avocados to france because in <laughs> french an, an avocat is an avocado so you can go to the grocery store and pick up an avocado and then you can go walk around the corner to an avocado's office which isn't terribly confusing like i don't think anyone's ever like a lawyer and a, an avocado are so far apart from each other that no one's really going to get confused in context right probably not mm-hmm. although i'd love to hear a sentence where you could confuse the two but like that's a fine little mix-up, but what if it was something more like more difficult to uh, to parse apart to figure out? It, I think it would create a lot of confusion in language. Which, if there's anything we need in life, language doesn't need to be more confusing because the whole point of language, in my opinion, is to have clarity of meaning, basically. Right, it's the fundamental idea of yeah. humans can think abstractly. Like, yes, we're talking about a cow, and we could be looking at the cow. The cow is not abstract, but if I leave that field and then write down the word C O W, cow, that is an abstract idea that anyone else who understands the English language knows I mean a cow. And of course, unless like I'm writing a poem or something of that sort, prose, where really I'm talking about someone's character, like they are like a cow, and then it's a totally different thing. So adding clarity to language typically is useful, in my humble opinion, which is why I, I, I can see why some pedants would, you know, rage against the dying of the light, so to speak. Like, no, literally means literally. You can't change the word. But I'm on the other side, which is like, eh, well, if people change the way they use the word, then the word has changed. You can't hold on to it too tightly. And I also think, I mean, from from very pragmatic um origins like language evolving practically to try and add clarity to the language there's a lot of beauty that comes from that oh yeah. right so um the french uh or the southern french stew ratatouille um the word comes from an old sort of pre-french language and it meant to stir up it's a you know the verb sure. form of to stir up okay. right um, that's super boring. <laughs> um, not, sure. not a great word for a, a dish. Um, but you know, obviously you can, you can tell very, very, 
practical origins. Oh, is that the dish that you fry or is that the one you stir up? I want the one you stir up. Right. Um, right. I want but the from stew. that we yeah. get this Yeah, from that we get this beautiful word though, ratatouille, um that maybe you didn't know. But then Disney came out with this adorable movie about a rat who cooks in a French restaurant. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's 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 a fun word to say. I I love it. I think it adds to the richness of, you know, it's it's a beautiful French word. I don't speak more than a few words of French, um, but it's it, it it has divorced itself entirely from its origins and just become the word that means this iconic stew of fresh summer vegetables and tomatoes. Sure, yeah, that's a great example. Actually, you know, it's another good example of that is ketchup. So ketchup is a great example. Um, ketchup is such a quintessentially American thing, right? Tomato ketchup. And really when I say that, to be honest, I mean Heinz 57. There's a reason yep. for that, but I think that Heinz 57 encapsulates the, I'm going to use a big German word, the gestalt, the idea, the essence of what we think of ketchup, which is like an indescribable flavor, basically. Kind of like, tell me what Coke tastes like. Coca-Cola, that is. Uh, yeah. You're like, uh, I don't know. It tastes like Coke. That's what gestalt <laughs> means. It just is what it is, right? It's an essence of itself. So anyways, um, ketchup is actually comes from, uh, ooh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Hokkien, uh, a Chinese word, ketchup. And basically, it was a sauce made of fermented fish. So like, we were talking about this before the show, Dave, but I know you made some pho over the weekend. I'm sure you mm-hmm. used fish sauce at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So fish sauce has this, you know, it's this fermented, salty, super funky sauce. Depending on which part of the world you're pulling from, it'll have a different profile, of course. Basically, this this sauce from China, which was, a, I guess, a delicious accoutrement to pretty much anything, spread around the world and it kind of changed. So if you heard someone in China in, like, say, 500 BC or CE say ketchup and then you eventually float your way back to Western Europe you're probably not going to pronounce it correctly nor are you going to like be able to harken back to the literature to make sure that you're right about the way you're pronouncing it so over like a millennia all of a sudden this fish sauce that has this very complex flavor and is just used on a lot of things becomes ketchup and then we get to the new world and we add tomatoes to it and all of a sudden it's like oh this sauce is really good because tomatoes are full of umami and they complement the fish very, very well. So all of a sudden, ketchup becomes tomato ketchup. And then tomato ketchup, and I think it came about in the 1800s, was the first time it was ever declared as a word, tomato ketchup. And now, you put Heinz 57 on anything in the world besides a hot dog, because I'm still from Chicago. Um, <laughs> and and it's just ketchup. But it's a Chinese, like a not even like a Mandarin word. It's an older language than Mandarin Chinese word that we're still hearkening back to. I think that's fascinating because it has nothing to do with its origin, but we've carried it to a new meaning and everyone loves, well, I'm going to say everyone loves ketchup. I think it's, um, ugh, I, I don't, I don't remember exactly what article this was, but I think other than vanilla, which vanilla is, I think one of the most universally loved, um, Mm-hmm. scents and flavors. Um, I think there's there's a universality to ketchup that's just um, like one of the most kind of 
prominent universal flavors. Uh, I was actually watching a video yesterday. Um, it was a TED Talk that Malcolm Gladwell gave, and he was talking about um, the history of the, basically one person in food science who kind of revolutionized the idea of um, flavor and taste and preference in terms of like the American consumer for foodstuffs. Because up until, you know, I can't remember, I think it was the 60s or 70s, you know, there was one type of pasta sauce, and all the yeah. food companies were trying to find the best pasta sauce. And what he his hypothesis, which sounds obvious to us now, but you know, wasn't obvious even 50 years ago was there is no ideal. Every, you know, human beings are, are complex biological organisms that have different taste receptors and flavor receptors and preferences. Like you need, you need optionality. You need <laughs> a number of different things to try and capture the whole market because one sauce is not going to do that. Um, but ketchup is one of those few things that, you know, I, I, one of my biggest pet peeves are like trendy restaurants that try and make their own ketchup because yep. <laughs> I'm all for trendy restaurants trying to make their own version of stuff. But like I, I have never had a different ketchup that wasn't Heinz 57 and thought this is better than Heinz 57. It's always like, can you take this garbage away and yeah. bring the Heinz 57 that or I just don't want? call it ketchup, you know, Be like, Hey, we have yeah. a, we have a, a tomato sauce or, um, Oh shoot. What's it called? We have a, a cocktail sauce designed to be served with fries. Like it doesn't need to, cause yeah, I think ketchup is Heinz 57. Like even if I see like another brand of ketchup, I'm just like, ugh, it's not yeah. going to taste as good. And so I don't know if it's psychosomatic or not, but I can tell when it's not Heinz 57. Yeah. I it's, it's not because like in my, my, in my brain, I, I want to be on the other side of this argument. <laughs> you know, I, I want the trendy burger shop that makes their own ketchup. I, I want to say, oh, that's way better than Heinz. You got to go to this place to get it. Um, because that's, you know, the hipster in me always wants to like root for the little guy. But, but <laughs> sure. I just have to, I have to, uh, you know, bow down to my taste and say, yeah, no, that. Get this Kensington's off my burger. <laughs> Which Kensington's as a brand is all right by me, but yeah, I wouldn't. I would never buy their ketchup. Like, no, it's Heinz or nothing. Hmm. It's not bad. I just always would prefer Heinz. <laughs> sure. I mean, like, I don't really drink Coca Cola all that often anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But if someone offered me like, hey, here's a can of Coke or here's a can of Pepsi, I'm always going to choose Coke. That's just what I grew up yeah. on. That's that's life for me. So, like, that's the best cola there is. But that's just so preferential back to your original point. <laughs> you know, like, that's that's really all I care about is hearkening back to those memories of, you know, good Lord, how old was I when the first time I had Coke? Who knows? I think that gets us down a, that gets us down a, 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 another really fascinating tangent, but I think a different conversation altogether. The idea of, like, what is preference, you know? And I think there's a world of difference between um, people who don't like cilantro because they have a legitimate, you know, gene that oh, right. causes them to actually think that cilantro tastes like soap and people who don't eat mushrooms because of the texture or people who, I don't know, think they can tell the difference between things that like science has proven you can't. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's kind of 
you know, getting back to the original question, that's kind of what we're talking about is preference, right? I mean, a language, uh, the English language, you know, pre-New World, so like when it was just living in England, so to speak, it, basically all the millions of people who spoke English at the time, their preferences as a whole determined what English, what shape English would take, right? Like that's what a regional dialect is, is, you know, a group of people agreeing that, you know, uh, like when I moved to Texas, I think I, I've talked about this before, but you don't put something away in Texas. That's not how you'd say it, at least. You put something up. So like, yeah, you know, if I had my phone out in high school, which, I, yeah, I had a flip phone back then. And if my teacher in Texas said, hey, put that up. It confused me at first. It's like, up where? <laughs> like, what do you what do you want me to do with it? Until I realized it's just local dialect for put it away. It's like, oh, okay, that's what's going on. So it's a preference of a group of people saying like, no, we're just going to say it this way because we prefer it. And isn't that just the same as how languages are formed? I mean, what I mean is to connect, connect it to the beef idea, beef and boof, is that at some point it was preferential to continue to talk about the meat rendered from a cow or, you know, butchered from a cow as beef, as boof. And it was, it was persistent for long enough that it stayed ingrained in English as like, no, this is the way we will still speak of it. And I have a, my theory is that it's um, aspiring to uh, power in the sense of like, if you were a cook coming up in England in let's say the 11th century and like the, the court is still running French, you're not going to learn to cook like the local people in England you're, and if you're trying to get to the court and cook for them. You're going to learn how to cook in a French manner so that you can make it into that circle. And therefore, it's not a cow, it's boof. And I think yeah. because of that, you, you enforce that cycle enough and all of a sudden it just becomes the way everyone perceives it. You can even trace, like we talk about this all the time, but beer versus wine in Western culture. Wine tends to be more aristocratic, more upper class, more elegant, more refined. And beer is more plebeian, more blue collar, more everyday man, hardworking dude person mm -hmm. you know and you can trace it back to some would say you can you could trace it back to the battle of hastings basically that you could grow and barley very well in england and make beer it was pretty difficult to grow vine though so like everyone like thomas jefferson here in the states he, the rulers would import french wine into england or in thomas jefferson's case to washington dc monticello so they could have this sophisticated drink and so this class status emerges too, right? Not only is wine more refined, but it's the, it's, it belongs to royalty. And you will, you will be served this in a royal court. And therefore, I, and still to this day, wine is so much more hoity-toity, you know, highfalutin, fancy. When, to be honest, I think a really well-made beer can compete with a really made wine any day. think you're on to something. I want to I want to kind of expand on that a little bit and say that the history or the path that words take through a language um is really indicative of the culture, not just the culture, but the, you know, the well, to your point, the preferences or the angles or the agendas of the people, you know, living in that culture at that time. And I think that there's it 
it's not necessarily universal because what happened somewhere wouldn't have happened the same way somewhere else. Um, and I think kind of an illustration of that. Um, so in, in English, we're all sort of familiar with the way that like the way that we voice the sound animals make. Right. So oh, like a cow yeah. says moo, a chicken says, blah, blah. um, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> cluck, cluck. <laughs> um, those aren't the actual sounds those animals make, right? They're not voiced. We we're trying to use words, the English language to imitate how they sound. Um, I always thought that was universal until I, you know, started traveling and I learned that children from other countries who speak other languages have their own words for the sounds that farm animals make. And they are not even close to the same oh. as in English. Like you can kind of tell. And I, unfortunately, I don't, I can't think of an example. Um, but I have a, another example, um, with food. So shabu shabu, I don't know. Uh, oh, I know yeah. you and I have had that before. Mm hmm. But to those who haven't, it's it's a it's a way of eating where you basically have um, uh, like a very hot broth, and you're kind of dipping certain things in it, um, vegetables too, but primarily like thinly sliced meat. Yeah, and it's kind of like word, if you went to a Benihana grill, and instead of a grill with a grill master, there's just like a pot of broth that you, the individual at the table at the restaurant, actually cook yourself in this pot of broth, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, the word shabu shabu comes from the sound it makes when you swish thinly sliced beef through this broth. <laughs> and that's coming from a, you know, Japanese ear, Japanese language, because uh, I don't I don't get it. Yeah. Shabu, shabu, shabu. Oh, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not how I <laughs> maybe swish swish. Do you want to have swish swish for dinner? <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think it's, it's a, maybe a, a, a stupid example. Um, but it just, to me, it's, it's, uh, it goes to show that how the, like the path a word takes through its development is just so, such a product of a time and a place and a culture and a people and a, and everything around that. So would Buff have become Buff? in Japan, you know, all else being equal. Uh, I can see what you're saying about, you know, the, the French aristocracy and wanting to maintain that power dynamic. But, you know, without that power dynamic, that word could have evolved so differently. Oh, surely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if the Battle of Hastings went the other way, I mean, who knows how the English language would have been shaped as we know it today. So I had this thought a couple of years ago um, when I, when I lived in the Czech Republic, um, as I was learning the language, I really, um, I, I knew of all of these dishes and what the Czech word was for that specific dish. And I always thought they were very beautiful names. And then as I got to learn the language, I realized, oh, no, 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 no. These are just very, very dull descriptions of exactly what I'm eating. Um, like a famous dish uh, in Czech is called svičkova na smetana, which sounds very cool. And it literally means uh, beef in cream. 
And that's kind of what the dish is. <laughs> okay, so it's a literal <laughs> description of the dish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another Czech, Czech uh, dish called Vetschu Nedlozello, and it literally means pork, dumplings, sauerkraut. And that's, that's what it is. It's literally three <laughs> things on a plate. Um, but that's that's very common just throughout, you know, we, we know of these, we know of these, um, these dishes by their name and we think that it's very beautiful, but nine times out of 10, it's just a, a very basic description. Like Bambo Numbo from Vietnam is noodles with beef from the South and Tikka Masala means spicy pieces. And it only exists in its in current incarnation because it sounded very exotic for British patrons. Right. Cause the dish was sort of invented in Britain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's not really an Indian dish per se. It's a English Indian dish. Yep. Should that inform the way that we create things? So, and the reason why I asked that is I was, I, I've always had this, the only, the only dish that I've really created that's kind of been truly mine um, is this steamed kale dish with like very vinegary broth and raw eggs. I'm pretty sure I made it for you at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really weird. I don't know why it tastes the way that it does. Um, and the influences came from a million different places. But I'm like, this this is like unique enough to be mine. What should I call this? And I want it to have this very cool name. But the problem is all of these quote unquote cool names are not actually cool names. They're just basic descriptors in a language that sounds exotic to my ear. Yeah, and I think you're getting to something interesting because I think, so here's what I'm hearing, Dave, is that you want to come up for a name that encapsulates your understanding of this dish and makes it sound cool and exciting. The problem is whatever you come up with, Dave, is going to be cool and exciting to you. And what is going to end up (laughs) sticking is what is cool and exciting to the, let's say, the general population. Like that's that's where the name really truly gets made, is in culture, not in the, at the individual level. In my humble opinion, um, yeah. like you could try and give yourself a nickname. Let's put it this way: like you know, I could be <laughs> like, like George no. Costanza and T Bone. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, you could try and give yourself a nickname, but it probably won't stick. If someone else gives you a nickname that the group is like, "Yeah, that's good," that nickname is going to stick a hundred percent of the time. So I think it's really tri- tricky to name something and have that original name actually stick around as like what it becomes known as long term. And I think part of that is just proximity. Like you're too close to the dish. You're too intimately interwoven. Like your ego is probably wound up in that. It's various aspects of your identity are wound up in that. So you being able to name that dish something that's going to stick for eternity Good luck. You know, if you make it great, that sounds awesome. But probably that name will come from an external source saying, I know you called this X, Y, and Z, but I love Z, Y, and X better. And that might stick. I think you you just kind of tapped into a, a modern mystery. It's Well, it's a mystery that's, you know, been pervasive throughout history. But I think we finally kind of understand its power but we don't quite understand how to harness that power yet we can get very close and that's this idea of how does something capture the imagination of the culture and get fixed in the culture as a you know 
function of the culture, right? So like virality, um, you know, in terms of content. Uh, oh God, what's the thing that the oh uh, Nahi tweaking? Do you, do you know about that story? <laughs> Not really. No. Um, so I don't even, I kind of vaguely know the origin of it. It's something that happened within the last couple of weeks. Um, th- th- uh, there's a, uh, musician, I think is little Nas. Um, yeah. Little Nas. Mm-hmm. Who tweeted something about Tony Hawk. Oh yeah. Tony Hawk was selling skateboards with like made from his blood. Um, and, which I, I don't know the what or the why there because I don't really pay attention to pop culture all that much. But but <laughs> this guy tweeted, nah, he tweaking. And it just became this like this response. So like all of these all of these social media accounts or posts, there'd be a post and there would be two million comments, which is nah, he tweaking from two million different people. It was just picked up so quickly in this, you know, weird social media internet thing. And it's, I mean, it's hysterical. Like, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, Instagram account you and I both follow. Oh um, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure we could, we could pitch him trash can Paul. Um, <laughs> and one of his posts, the other day, like every single comment, yeah, it was, was not tweaking. tweaking. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's you know, it, like we can we can identify that power now because we can see it happen so quickly in real time, just because of the way social media functions. But we still don't know how to harness it. Like, if you have an idea, how do you get that to be this pervasive thing that everybody understands? 